0: Welcome to the unofficial UPAN podcast. My name is Paula Bautista, and I'm, as always, I'm your host for this episode. So, apologies for my voice sounding all kinds of messed up. Uh, the bomb cyclone has just hit New York at the time of recording. I've been stuck in bed the past couple of days trying to keep warm drinking lots of soup. Hopefully, my voice comes back for, by the time I do my next interview. That said, before this, uh, before the storm hit, I was actually able to interview my friend, Grace Strong, uh, for this episode. So, Grace graduated from Penn, uh, class of 2015 from the college, uh, essentially as a pre-med student. However, she actually is currently pursuing her law degree at Harvard Law School as a second-year law student while also pursuing a joint degree as a Master's of Public Health. If this wasn't enough, she also is a Fulbright fellow, having done her research on special needs uh, resources available in the Philippines. Um, and while she was at Penn, she was involved in the community uh, service uh, organizations through the Civic House, as well as the Asian American Community um uh, through uh, various in- involvements with AKD5, VSA, and uh, the Penn Dragon Boat Club as a founding member. Um Grace is an amazing person who, you know, she's really dedicated her life to advocacy for those who really need it, be it, um, those with special needs veterans. Um, and that's why she's pursuing her law degree now. Um, so without further ado, um, we will get into the interview with Grace. Uh, she may or may not have a pun for you, uh, for those who are un- averse to punch, but don't let that distract you from listening to the episode. I think this is a really great one. Uh, and I'll catch you on the other side. Um, So yeah, here's my interview with
1: Grace. All right, check, check. All right, let's go. Uh, All right, so, hi Grace, thanks, and welcome to the podcast, thanks for agreeing to be interviewed.
2: Happy to be here, thanks for having me.
1: All right, cool, so let's just hop into it then, so... Uh, why don't you tell us first off, you know, you graduated from Penn about what what did you graduate and what did you what did you graduate with?
2: Yeah, I graduated from Penn in the class of twenty fifteen with a degree in biology and a minor in chemistry. All
1: right, cool. Um but before let's let so that's your time at Penn. Let's quickly hop to before you got to Penn. Yeah. So you grew up in California, you're yes. a California. Southern girl.
2: California, twenty minutes away from the beach. It was ideal. All
1: right. Um, why don't you tell us about you know, your family, your parents, your I know you have a sister who you're pretty close with. Why don't you talk about, you know, what life growing up Uh, Growing up was like in in SoCal.
2: Yeah, I have one older sister like you mentioned. Her name is Christine And she's the best big sister I could have asked for (laughs) in this world She's the most compassionate human being on this planet Um, Both of my parents are aerospace engineers. They were refugees from Vietnam. So they fled after the war in around 75 Um, Lived in a refugee camp. My mom was in uh, Indonesia and my dad was in Thailand and I had some family in the Philippines as well before they were able to make it to the States Um, they worked hard, got full scholarships to USC, um, became engineers and I grew up in Irvine.
1: All right, nice. So, what were you like in high school then? You know, what kind of. Oh,
2: I was definitely like one of those most annoying people in high school for sure. Um,
1: annoying in what sense?
2: So, I went to a pretty competitive high school. Uh, Irvine is known to have a largely Asian community. Um, and along with that came a lot of high expectations a lot of the time. So, a lot of my classmates worked really hard to get into co- top colleges, um, overextended in extracurriculars. And for example, like to be in the top 1%, you had to take. Classes in community colleges just to supplement your GPA. Um, so I kind of grew up in that hyper-competitive environment, which is something that I thought was normal until I realized, hey, like there are places that you can be happy and not be like that. When
1: so, when did you realize it wasn't, I guess, like super it, normal?
2: I would say probably not until like my senior year of Penn, because okay. Penn kind of mirrored that hyper-competitive aspect for quite some time while I was pre-med mm-hmm. there, um, but. For me, I think it was when I kind of just took a step back and realized, like, not everybody had to have that upbringing in order to be, you know, objectively successful. So, um, growing up in that environment, it was hard, but I was lucky enough to have a very supportive family. Um, both my parents made sure to, like, you know, always show me love, be there for me during my awkward teenage years. So. <laughs>
1: oh, it was awkward teenage yeah. years.
2: Yeah, <laughs> horrible. Yeah, so what kind of,
1: uh, I guess, like, what kind of extracurriculars or activities do you do, you know, aside from, you know, classes at, at school? Yeah,
2: um, so I was captain of the mock trial team. Okay. So actually, like, my dream job when I was young was to be a lawyer. It was my first dream, um, and... I guess I'm I'm in law school now, just as a disclaimer. Um, uh, So I was captain of the mock trial team and uh, heavily involved in speech and debate and also the pre-medical club when I was in high school because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, And I think that I wanted to be a lawyer up until the point where my senior year of mock trial, um, I was working pretty hard in competition and I got pretty strong marks. But one of the feedbacks I got from one of the judges was, Uh, Essentially, he called me a cutie, a sweetie, and a sweetheart all in one sentence. And here I was giving a closing statement. I was trying to be aggressive. I was trying to be strong. I was trying to be eloquent. And he kind of just reduced that to like cutie, sweetheart, and uh, sweetie. So it was kind of like a jarring moment for me where I thought, you know what, I'm a five foot tall Asian girl that looks very young. Um, I never thought that I'd make it in the legal field just because I didn't have the benefit of being, you know, a tall, imposing man. Um, But something that I've come to terms with, and that I think that I'm going to have to work harder, but it doesn't, you know, preclude me from being a a great lawyer.
1: All right, no, that. Yeah. Wow, well, I didn't know that. Um, but <laughs> yeah,
2: that's that was what crushed me because I worked so hard to be a good captain for my team, and it was kind of just reduced in that moment. Um, and it wasn't the first time I had heard statements like that, but it was the first time it was so public. Um, so, yeah, that's something that I definitely carried with me, and I continue to carry with me okay, as a law school wow. student. Um,
1: wow, that's super powerful. I can see how that... <laughs> That would definitely affect you because when I knew you at Penn, um, you were you know definitely oh, all yeah. all in on on pre med. I should probably explain that as well. Um, yeah, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that. But um, yeah, so I guess you know, getting to Penn, I guess, what made you decide first off to apply to pen? Mm-hmm. Like, did you apply early decision? Or... Oh, I applied
2: regular. Okay, cool. Um,
1: so, so what made you, I guess, decide to apply to pen as opposed to yeah. staying, you know, for your love for California. Beautiful California. California.
2: Yeah. Everyday regrets, I'm uh, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but, but,
1: but uh, what, what made you decide to apply for pen and then ultimately to, to just yeah. take pen over any other office you might have had? Uh?
2: Um, so after that experience with mock trial, I kind of thought, you know what? What is something that I enjoy? Something that, you know, seems to be kind of a a safe path. And um, something that my parents really encouraged was, you know, getting involved with the sciences. Both of them are engineers. Um, We used to do like calculus competitions on the whiteboard to see who could solve problems fastest. Uh, And so I figured like going to the sciences was a natural path. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up with a family member that has autism. So that kind of um, made me more interested in the science behind autism. And Penn, Chop in particular, is one of the leaders in autism research. So I knew that I wanted to apply to a place where I could continue research and study autism in a scientific or lab setting. And when I got into Penn, um, I actually immediately reached out to Professor Douglas Wallace, who is um, probably the premier uh, studier of mitochondrial diseases and autism in particular. And um, he he agreed to let me work in his lab right away. So I knew wow. that if I decided to go to Penn, I'd have a job Great. for me waiting. So I was really excited about All that. All
1: right, sounds good. And I guess you know before we hop into your time aspect, you have a lot of a lot to cover. But <laughs> before we hop there, I want to ask you know that that bad memory you know I guess about mock trial. Is there any is particularly happy memories you have like you know the kind kind of counterbalance that like what's your favorite memory I guess from growing up in SoCal I guess.
2: My favorite memory or just uh, mock child memory in general? Just
1: uh, favorite memory in general, I guess.
2: Uh, I would say it's just being so close to all my family members. So yeah. my mom has seven brothers. She's the only girl. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> my dad has six siblings, and they're all in Southern California. So it was essentially always a, a busy cousins. home. A ton of cousins. Like, too many to count. Um, and so it was just, like, always a warm environment for me um, to be surrounded by, you know, family members that I could... C- turn to when I was like stressed out or when I needed advice, and um, I was kind of in the middle okay. um, in terms of age range, so I always had people that are older than me that I could like, look up to and um, kids that I could relate to that were younger
1: than and me. You keep in well. touch with all your cousins Oh, all the time, like, all every the time.
2: holiday. <laughs> nice, um, all
1: right, yeah, so you know, come to Penn, I guess, what's it, I guess, um, fall of 2011, I guess. Yes, um, so you know, what do you, you know, you come in, you obviously, like you said, you came in to do, you came in, you started doing autism research, I guess, yeah. immediately, you you basically went on the pre-med track. So I guess, you know, first off, what advice would you have for any current or prospective pre-med students? Because I know there are a lot out there.
2: Yeah, I guess what I would say is, like, don't be too hard on yourself when things don't go as Mm -hmm. planned. Uh, Things definitely didn't go as planned for me. That's for sure. Um,
1: That's like a recurring theme on this podcast. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But in any case.
2: Um, I guess, like, what appealed to me about being a pre-med in general um, is the idea that, it's a very checklist oriented career where you follow certain steps and you follow a certain path and you should get the outcome of getting into a good right. medical school you should get the outcome of getting into a good residency it, it's very
1: much like a science right like exactly. you, the, 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 the inputs come in and then you know a result reliable outcome
2: all about those out. formulas like there yeah. should be like a golden rule like if you work hard if you follow the steps of the career people lay out for you you should optimistically get into you know a great medical school a great residency etc but things Chemical don't <laughs> things don't always <laughs> tend to work that way and that's something that was hard for me to come to terms with like I struggled really hard for a lot of my classes at Penn like Mm -hmm. it wasn't easy to do well in some of these hyper competitive classes where the people were nice they were but it was just so much work and expectations were so high for a lot of these professors that like there was an organic chemistry exam where like 20 people scored in the single digits. And if it's the case like that, then maybe there's something with the teaching. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, but, I,
1: I, or I'm a warden kid. I can't really emphasize, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah, no, uh, I, 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 I understand. Yeah, uh, there's, It's not always you. It's always yeah. your fault.
2: Um, but at the same time, there were those small senses of triumph where like, you would work really hard to understand a concept. And then when you finally get it, that's like, it kind makes of your, makes your entire semester and it feels great. But those were few and far in between. So I guess for me, it was hard because like, how are you supposed to measure how well you do without these external metrics, Ex- external metrics like letter gauge, grades or GPA? And so a lot of it was me trying to find what was important to me outside of those metrics. And that's something that at like 17, 16 years old, I didn't really feel equipped to do yet. Because did, you,
1: did you come to Penn early? Or I'm sorry? Did you come to Penn? Uh,
2: I think. Oh, wow, well, you're right. Yeah. So I would be 17 or 18 when I okay, first started. Okay, cool. this yeah, is curious.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Okay, cool. Um, so it's almost like finding, I guess, a sense of intrinsic validation for who you are as a person as Absolutely. opposed to relying on these extrinsic, you know, uh, measures, I guess. Absolutely. So I guess what, was, what were things I guess you did on campus to help find like these intrinsic um, validation, I guess?
2: So I mentioned that I grew up with a family member that has autism, yeah. so a lot of things that I found most fulfilling or most valuable to me um, was with like, the ve- developmentally delayed community. Um, so aside from my work in the lab where it was like autism related research, I like had the chance to work with Penn Speaks for Autism. Okay. Um,
1: well, you have, so what is Penn Speaks for Autism? Yeah,
2: it's a student organization group that focuses on autism advocacy, awareness and also creating resources and programming for families with individuals that have special needs and their children. Mm-hmm. Um, so. We had the chance when I was, I got involved with it my freshman year, okay. and I was involved with it for all four years, and we had the chance to start an after-school program for elementary school students that had special needs, and that's something that uh, has not been done in the nation before by any other university. Wow. So okay. it was definitely an uphill battle, but we had a really dedicated team, and having that team work so hard to create something from scratch was extremely fulfilling and like getting to work with the children uh, three days a week uh, after school from 3.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. like those were the highlights.
1: Where, of, where were these, like what were you meeting with these kids? Like in West Philly yeah, schools? Yes, West Philly schools. So what was, you know, some of the bigger challenges I guess in getting this program underway I guess?
2: I guess one of the biggest challenges was getting parent buy-in, surprisingly. So the whole point of the program was to allow parents to work full time instead of having to leave work early to pick up their kids from school and take care of them. Um, but I think that part of it was we had to get community feedback and really understand what they needed or what they wanted for their kids. We found out through like communicating with these parents um, that they really wanted chances for their kids to have physical activity. Because most of the time, well, what would happen is the kid would come home and just sit there, parked in front of a TV all day and not have yeah. a chance to play outside like kids should do um so for us like it was just getting feedback from parents and really understanding what they needed instead of just going forward with what we thought they wanted mm-hmm. um, so that was that was a challenge but, but something it's that we not we just
1: did. the case of i guess you know we're the we're the intelligent ivy league students Absolutely. we come in and dictate what's right Absolutely. it's like getting the bite all right cool yeah that, that's definitely important um, i guess all okay, right so you're pre-med you you work with Penn speaks for autism um, let's see what else I have in my notes you were also I guess related to Penn Speaks for Autism was that part of it? so it says and my notes it says you were part of the Civic House Associates uh, coalition. in fact you were the co-president of that so what was you know the Civic House Oh, what is the Civic House I guess?
2: yeah so CHAC for yeah. short sure, um, is the umbrella organization for all community service and advocacy groups on campus hmm. so when I was co-president with my awesome friend Amit um, there were 40 groups under this umbrella okay. so we essentially provided advising um, resources and helped with budgeting for each of these groups. So it was a quite large contingent, and we really had the chance to facilitate collaborations between uh, the different community service groups.
1: Okay, so I guess, you know, I was. I, I was- Kind of tangentially, you know, related. Yeah. as part of the. I was part APO. Of, uh, of APO. Uh, that, that well, te- technically, my second sophomore <laughs> senior year. But in any case, um, but I was kind of tangentially. when obviously, I was your friends so I kind of, I, I knew about this. But what I I wasn't like super involved. So what I guess one of the, some of the unique challenges that the I guess community service. I guess community um, on Penn's campus has to deal with that, you know, might not be immediately apparent.
2: So one unique thing is that even though all of our groups were community service and advocacy related, they were quite siloed because their missions were so distinct. So, mm-hmm. for example, we had one group committed to doing step dancing for kids in West Philly schools. Yeah, step. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're a great group, by the way. Yeah. Um, and another group that was focused on like uh, increasing technology proficiency for adults. Okay. So it's really hard to you know find ways to creatively bridge those gaps mm-hmm. in. Organic ways that didn't feel too forced. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes the collaborations were successful, and other times it was a, more of a one-off thing. So it was uh, definitely it, a what, learning. What,
1: what were some of those more successful, I guess, collaborations you you helped facilitate? Yeah. Like?
2: Um, so we actually had a community service and advocacy week, the first one that we've ever had at Penn, um, where we had themes for each day. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, like one day it would be themes on education. So all the education-related um, groups would host an event for kids in the area um, and another day we had one on health and wellness so it's similar to that we grouped uh, our organizations according to subject matter and then they were able to come up with a collaborative event for each day of the week.
1: Okay and I guess uh, over obviously you were involved in like all four years you know with, with CHAC I guess um, how would you say that over the your four years at Penn you saw uh, community service at Penn change over time I guess?
2: We got a lot more applications to to be a part of CHAC. That's something that I was surprised by. Um, So we had 40 groups and it was kind of like a unspoken cap that we would only have that many because being a part of CHAC is also you know access to certain types of privileges and and funding and Um, and so it's so hard to turn down some groups that do such amazing Mm -hmm. work but don't exactly fit into the CHAC mission vision and so it was really a tough call sometimes to you know let those groups not be a part of check we would rather just like you know accept everyone right, and obviously. have them be part of it um, but at the same time like we had to make sure that we were doing right by the groups that were already in check
1: okay um what would you say I guess you know let's say I was like a Penn student I have this great idea for a community service group and I apply to check and you know for whatever reason uh, I, I can't get accepted by check um, what advice would you have for them to about you know to go about community service because I guess like I guess that kind of feeds back into the whole idea of you know Mm -hmm. external versus internal validation and finding that internal validation what would your advice be for someone in that situation
2: well my first piece of advice would be that just because you don't get into CHAC the first year doesn't mean that you'll always get rejected from Mm -hmm. it so in terms of you know getting funding and getting resources definitely work with students that are involved with CHAC Mm -hmm. board currently and also the CHAC staff Civic House staff Um, to kind of reshape the application process. And other than that, it's probably that there's always ways to join a group that already exists and create kind of an offshoot of that group. So if you have a passion that's tangentially related to something that already exists, it's much easier to become an appendage of that original group mm. than it is sometimes to start off on your own. Um, but if you are really interested in starting off something by yourself, um, there are a ton of other avenues for funding. It just takes a little bit more legwork work um, to find those grants.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, what do you think of some of the resources at the Civic House that you know not a lot of students might not realize exist?
2: Oh, let's see. The physical space itself is very underutilized. It's beautiful. Like, it's a beautiful building that used to... Right
1: in the middle of campus. Yeah, strangely
2: enough, it used to be a... uh, I think it used to be a police office where like Penn police used to (laughs) used to be hosted at so it's kind of a strange setup but it's definitely a beautiful physical space for meetings and um, the tech there is great too Um, other than that it's just a really great community to Mm -hmm. meet people who have similar interests and um, likewise have a commitment to serving the community um, in a genuine way that you don't oftentimes find at Penn.
1: Mm -hmm. It's almost like finding like uh, having that third space I guess absolutely absolutely. this is super valuable all right Um, speaking of third spaces I guess I met you personally. Ah,
2: yeah, so I remember the, exactly when I met exactly you. Exactly
1: went through the panes in the American community. Yeah, you House. were
2: napping on the couch when I was coming in for uh, my Apollo interview my freshman year.
1: Right. Yeah, second yes. semester
2: was that first semester. Uh, it's got to be second semester.
1: If you, you couldn't. Yeah, I, I guess you applied. You applied um, exactly. for your second semester. Exactly. I guess. But in, <laughs> in any case, reminiscing aside, so I met you through you know the A's in the American community on campus, um, which you which I guess your other aside aside from tech, aside from pre med, this was like. As your other it was absolutely a home away
2: from home yeah,
1: yeah. um so i guess you know uh I I already talked to uh in, in the previous episode to Jin. Who, oh, I
2: love Jin. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He got super involved with the uh, community through Peer. He's
2: my peer baby. Well, not my direct peer baby, but he was a mentee. He when was, was when
1: so... when you were president. Yeah, yeah. Um. So you know, why <laughs> why don't you talk a little bit more about Peer? What it's missing is how it started, and then I guess like you, what your what you take your your take on your role as president was.
2: Yeah. So Peer stands for promoting enriching experiences and relationships, and it's one of the main programming that's done outside of patch um, from patch and it's a really great opportunity to really get involved with the uh, community that's available um, it's essentially a mentorship program that pairs upperclassmen, mostly mm-hmm. juniors and seniors, but sometimes sophomores, with an incoming freshman. And so the freshmen actually apply during the summer. Okay. So for a lot of them, it's the first thing at Penn that they apply to. So how do you find
1: how do you find the freshmen? Oh, we stalk. We
2: <laughs> stalk hard. We. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we go through public means. So it's nothing shady. But um, sometimes we're able to get our information for the application out on um, the emails and newsletters that are sent to incoming students from Penn. And you
1: at so, have a good return from from those. Exactly.
2: And then we also uh, go on the class Facebook. (laughs) So I've done a lot of cold Facebook messaging that is a little bit cringeworthy, but it was effective. Okay. Yeah. And so really it's a a family. Um, I actually did not participate in PEER my freshman year, but if I could redo it, I would have applied. Um, I just wish I knew about it. Um, So I got involved my sophomore year as a mentor. Yeah, then...
1: funny enough, I actually was going. I think I applied for pierre my freshman year, oh, but then I applied. I sent in the application like two hours oh, too late. Classic. Yeah. Anyway. yeah
2: they're uh, strict on
1: those deadlines.
2: I gotta yeah. say.
1: All right. Anyway, so you 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 got you joined sophomore year. Um, who are your mentees? Uh, my
2: first mentee was Di okay. Um She's fantastic. She was also pre-med. She actually lives in Boston right now, so we are okay. hang out. Um, my second mentee, I didn't have one the next year because I was president, so you and were busy. My last mentee was Sarah Shin, who's a fantastic student at um, Penn Nursing right now. All
1: right, cool. Um, and so now, uh, so you, you did Pierre. What were some, I guess, you some of your favorite memories uh, from, from your time at Pierre?
2: Um, One of the things that I love most about it is the initial retreat when Mm -hmm. you first get to meet the incoming freshmen because like a lot of the times with upperclassmen, like you're scoping out the freshmen thinking like, oh, who will be a good match for me and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But then behind the scenes, the board is also keeping an eye out to try to you know match make um, on on their behalf as well. And so you might get a pairing that you don't expect, but I think that for the most part, they've all been very, very well matched and very successful. Um, And surprisingly, I've actually caught up with somebody that was peer chair in like a decade before me, she was oh, wow. oh, she, yeah. she was to Harvard right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, randomly, I met up with her, and I realized like the alumni network is really strong. So the peer alumni network is something that uh, is very impressive and
1: has helped me make new friendships. Right, well. I know they come. They come to New York uh, almost every year, every other year at least. Yeah. and I always try to make it out.
2: Yeah, that. it's great to see um, them during their um, New York
1: trips. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I guess. Uh, so aside from Pierre, you were also uh, involved in a number of other things. You were uh, part of the Alpha Kappa Delta Phi sorority, yeah. um, as well as also the Vietnamese Student Association, yeah. and interestingly, the Penn Dragon Boat, <laughs> a founding member, apparently. Yeah. So why don't, we, okay, why don't we go through a bit? So AKD Phi, what, what, is there anything, I guess, any stories or any, anything you have to say about like, your, your time with Katie Phi?
2: Um, so Katie Phi is an Asian interest sorority. And I joined it because, like I mentioned earlier, like I have a big sister and she was a huge part mm-hmm. of my life growing up. And I really missed having that sense of like a family in particular, mm-hmm. a sister on campus. And Katie Phi really helped me fill that void. It's where I met some of my closest friends mm-hmm. and friends that I continue to hang out with. There's a large number of Katie KDFIs at Harvard right now and we meet up quite often and in New York, too. Okay. So it's something that I carry with me even mm-hmm. after graduating. Um, and it's been a really great opportunity for me to kind of go outside of my comfort zone mm-hmm. and like meet new people. So that's it's been a lot of fun. What
1: would you say to anyone who might be interested in potentially rushing an Asian into sorority, Um but isn't quite sure about it? I guess yeah. aside from just do it.
2: <laughs> um, this might not be fair because I was rush chair twice. Okay. <laughs> but what I can say is that it doesn't hurt to rush, but also that you know it's a really good opportunity to kind of push yourself and maybe you might not see yourself as somebody who is a sorority girl at first um, but honestly it, it really is just more of a family and everybody there that I've met has been very considerate caring and supportive of me mm-hmm. and everything that I do um, both at Penn and moving forward so highly recommend it um, but also there's no pressure like if mm-hmm. you go out to rush and you don't like it like no hard feelings at all
1: yeah strong network of also like strong strong female leaders oh yeah
2: well. absolutely like um, a Katie Phi woman was the one who helped me get into Harvard Law like she looked over all my application materials She's the one who prepped me for interviews And so these are people that I look up to and also I can consider mm-hmm. my sister and friends
1: All right, and then like I said, you're also involved in the Vietnamese Student Association Yeah um, uh, I remember I was part of your family you <laughs> yes. group, <gravity>. uh, uh. <laughs> But I guess, you know, obviously you're, you're a Vietnamese right you're, you're here I guess what does being Vietnamese mean to you? Um, I guess, Yeah, let's, let's leave it at that. What's, what does being a Vietnamese mean to you, especially on, on campus, I guess?
2: Um, I would say that what being Vietnamese means to me ties in a lot with my parents' experiences. Mm-hmm. It means being resilient and it also means like uh, having a sense of family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so VSA was both of those things because it was there VSA was there for me during times when I struggled the most in school it was a community that I could turn to when I was stressed out to really encourage me and tell me like you know I'm not alone Um, and it was just a lot of fun like we're Mm -hmm. probably one of the goofiest maybe aside from PPA we're like one of the goofiest um, cultural groups on campus and it's always just a good time whenever we're all together Um, so I would definitely recommend getting involved with the
1: cultural shows (laughs) Philly Uh, Philly has a a really large Vietnamese population right so how, how did how did VSA I guess relate to that wider community I guess? I think
2: that that's what was surprising to me. Um, So I came from Southern California which also has quite a large Vietnamese population Mm -hmm. and um, I think that what VSA was able to do is really connect to other universities Mm -hmm. um, and the Vietnamese students associations of like Temple for example and Drexel and really form a network that went beyond Penn that's something that's
1: quite rare to see um, for cultural groups. You like still you still keep up with friends? from, like, Absolutely
2: I'm going to one of their weddings in February. Oh wow okay.
1: (laughs) Um, I guess yeah I, uh, okay, uh, hold on. I brain farted real quick. No, don't worry. Um, Okay, cool. I can edit that out. Um, <laughs> or keep it in. <laughs> probably not. Uh, okay, and then 10 Dragon Boats. So I know pen dragon boat still around it, yes. it's rebranded a bit to dragon philadelphia but yes. originally it was the pen dragon yes. boat um club so how did you get involved with that
2: honestly henry chow is probably one of the most convincing people on this planet oh henry uh, i should interview
1: him for this he's
2: great he's yeah. a fantastic person that tells wonderful stories so he would be great for this podcast um but i remember it was uh student activities fair somebody was just standing there in like a dragon costume and i was like what is this person doing? He comes up to me and he's like, you look like somebody that could do dragon boating. And I am not athletic. I'm definitely not the paradigm of athleticism at all. On a good day, I'm like five feet tall. Um, There are some smaller athletes. (laughs) But what really drew me to Dragon Boat was that it's not about being the strongest or the Mm -hmm. biggest or the most athletic. It's about being disciplined, having technique and working as a team.
1: That seems like you.
2: (laughs) That's what I love about it. And like, I had the chance to Mm -hmm. um, start up the Dragon Boat team in its first year with Mm -hmm. Henry and kind of a ragtag group of other friends that were comprised of alums and also some um, current students. So it was a chance for me to really get to know people that have gone through the Penn experience, who have gone through some of the things that I was going through, um, because I wasn't in PR my freshman year. So I think that in a way it's similar to that. Um, I could ask them, you know, what if they had any advice for me or any recommendations and it was just a really good group um to be around
1: uh, have you ever gotten back on the water since, since yeah three? actually yeah. so
2: when i was in the philippines i was on the manila dragons oh wow <laughs> so uh those those trainings were a lot harder than um, oh you, so hear that sure. you hear that ending? sorry like, he actually messaged me when i got a um, Fulbright, he was like, you gotta get some secrets from the Manila team, they're like, they're ruthless. <laughs> wow,
1: okay. Um, I guess, you know, so I guess kind of uh, wrapping up your time at Penn, I guess, um, well, before before that, um, it, I finally, my notes, I also have says that you were involved with uh, the, with Grant fellow, So yeah. Grant fellow was a project that you worked on actually. Yes. Why, why don't you tell us what it was?
2: Yeah, so it was a project that I worked on with um, John Liu and Nick Liu who were two people that I met in peer actually in okay. VSA. So kind of these things all mm-hmm. tied together. Um, we had also worked on that autism
1: after school kind of program that i was telling you about yeah.
2: yeah and when we were making you guys that are, program
1: I guess it you guys like yeah
2: we're like close friends and we do yeah. pretty much everything together um but when we were starting that program we realized that it was so hard to get funding for something like an after school program that was quite small right like um, the, the whole
1: thing like if you're trying to start, start a small like community service it's exactly, hard exactly yeah.
2: like where do you get grants for this like um i can't we couldn't get money from sac for it because it was kind of like Uh, employing a a special ed teacher, so it was a little bit strange, like CHAT couldn't really provide funding for it because it wasn't directly for our students, it was for an after school program, Um, so it was kind of in this weird Zone where we didn't know where we could find funding for it, so we thought, you know what? If like we're having this problem, there's got to be other organizations Remind as of well a startup founder. <laughs> um, that are also, you know, trying to start these really great initiatives and programs, but just can't find these niche funding opportunities. And on the flip side, there are organizations that provide the, this niche funding opportunity, that no but taking. nobody's applying to. And we were lucky enough to find it randomly for our after-school program. But that's not to say that there were some that were just not used and not heavily utilized. So. Through that, we decided to create something called Grant Fellow, which is a grant application management system, mm-hmm. um, filter system, and search system. So, with this web app, um, we were actually accepted to the Microsoft Imagine Fund, which mm-hmm. was a startup accelerator for 12 weeks, where we were given Microsoft mentorship um, from things ranging from like basic coding, which I'm horrible at, but <laughs> got the chance yeah. to give a shot, um, and also business development and. Um, it was a really great opportunity and our team was selected to represent the United States in the national finals. Um, We won first place in national finals and moved on to represent the U.S. um, in the world finals at Microsoft headquarters. So
1: how was the world final? Oh it
2: was amazing. Um, So there's one team from each country that participates. There were like 382,000 competitors initially, and then there were like maybe 60 teams at the end, so okay. one team per country, and it was hilarious because um, at the end, the the team that won uh, the prize money, they would take us out to drinks, yeah. and uh, we would have like drinking competitions, but neither I nor my co-founders really drink much, okay. so we did not represent US to the best of our oh, ability, no.
0: okay. Ireland How crushed us, let's just say Ireland okay. out Ireland. Right.
2: us, they... They were like, you got to be kidding me. But how could you? <laughs> okay, anyway. I did not rep to the best of my oh. abilities. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all
1: right. Well, you, you still did, you still did yeah. as well. Um, all right. I guess, well, I guess, you know, before we move on to like your time after Penn, um, were there any you know other fun stories or any, you know, because part of this podcast I wanted to do was to have almost be like an oral history. So I guess how would you describe, I guess, Penn over your four years? And then I guess more specifically also the Asian American community over the four years any fun stories any trends any anything I guess
2: I guess something that really stood out to me is like the importance of having a physical space really lends itself to building relationships so one example of that is just like how I met you right yeah. um, we met at the physical space Apache you were taking a nap on the couch wrapped in a blanket like a burrito wow. I was like who is this person and since then we've become friends and we've been friends for like what seven years now yeah. six years now and I think that if there hadn't been that physical space to just really interact one-on-one with each other like it's so hard to make friendships So I'd really just say like having taking the time out to like go there and to meet people mm-hmm. um, That's something that I should have taken more advantage of when I was at Penn and I wish that I had Yeah, um, if I could have done it all over again.
1: All right. Sounds good. All right So you graduated Penn you graduate with a pre-med yes. and you decide to not go to med school <laughs> and inside you, well, you have a good reason. You decide to go join Fulbright. Yes. Um, so for those of us who don't know what Fulbright is, why don't you go ahead and explain uh, what the Fulbright fellow is.
2: Yeah, so Fulbright fellow means two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, option one is to get fully funded to conduct a research project in any country Mm -hmm. that's um, Fulbright oriented. And also another option is to teach English language uh, to countries that have students that would like to learn it. Um, For me, I did the research option. So my research focused on what resources are available to individuals with autism in the Philippines. Um, Okay,
1: pause mm -hmm. right there. So obviously I know you've been interested in autism for a while. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you had a family member who had autism. and then, I guess, Philippines. So, obviously, I'm Filipino. Yeah. I know that you you talked to me about like your application. I know you took Filipino classes and then... Oh, I was horrible,
2: started. but yes. Um, you definitely helped me through those classes.
1: But also, um, and you said you had family in the Philippines, but I guess what led you to decide to apply for the yes. Philippines?
2: Um, so, there were a few factors. The first is that... Um, I had family members that spent a number of years in the Philippines as refugees and okay. what they did say was that um, the Philippines was a very welcoming place and that, you know, they would go back if they had the chance. Um, another reason why is because I initially planned to do my research in Vietnam, oh, poor, but because uh, my parents had, you know, kind of escaped under traumatic circumstances, they were like, absolutely not, you cannot go back to Vietnam, okay. which I mean, I
1: Have you ever been back since then? Oh, no, and okay. I'm okay.
2: probably not going to in the near future, okay. largely because of that, and out of okay. respect for my parents. Um And another reason is because my little one, Katie Phi is actually from the Philippines. So she has family there. She grew up there. um, And they actually hosted me for a number of months while I was there. So it was kind of like an easier transition for me just knowing that I had like a home base already. A
1: resource. Yeah, a physical space, resource network. What
2: I can say is that like one of the main reasons why I I think I was able to get the Philippines uh, Fulbright is because I reached out to international students at Penn that were from the Philippines to really help me refine my application and really help me make those connections to... um, programs in the Philippines and make my application stronger. So that's something that I, I was really appreciative of. Yeah, is there uh,
1: anyone, I guess, like uh, either in the Philippines or those international students so you want to shout out, I guess?
2: Oh, Jamil um, Nactalon Ramos from the uh, Penn Nursing School. Yeah. She was a fantastic collaborator on my application. She mm-hmm. hooked me up with somebody that she had worked with when she grew up in the Philippines mm-hmm. that does special education and has oh, her own okay. school. So that was a fantastic resource
1: for All her. right. So, okay. Inceptioning back up to the, to, the, to the initial question. So, all right, so you're doing about special resource availability in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. First off, why, why should somebody decide to apply for Fulbright? Um, if they're, like, why would it be something somebody would be interested in as opposed to maybe going on to med school or going on to a consulting finance job or something?
2: Yeah. Um, from the perspective, Of like a professional career, I think that Fulbright really lends itself to being strong on a resume because it kind of shows that you're able to take initiative, go out there and push yourself to start something on your own. Uh, And from a personal standpoint, I think it's really great to take a pause after your four years at undergrad and do something completely out of the box. Like for me, I hadn't done much international traveling at all before the before my Fulbright opportunity, Um, but I think that really Gave me the chance to be creative, to pursue something that I genuinely was interested in and you know had a commitment to that I nece- didn't necessarily get the chance to explore in the classroom, because um, are not that many classes on developmental delay at Penn. Um, so this is something that gave me the chance to explore that, and uh, I think that that would be a great opportunity for any students that are looking to you know kind of hone in on what they're interested in and really dive deep into that topic. Okay. Cool. And the fact that it's fully funded, it provided travel stipend, living stipend, and research stipend. It definitely made that transition a lot easier.
1: Okay, cool. Um, how should? What advice would you have for anyone who, hearing this, might say, "Cool, I want to do Fulbright." What What should I do? Like, what resources on Penn should I follow? How should I yeah. go about doing it?
2: Um, so I would go to KERF, um, Center for Undergraduate Research um, at Penn. It's quite strong. Penn produces a lot of Fulbrights in general, mm-hmm. and um, they have a lot of experience providing advice and feedback for the application process. Um, Another thing that was really helpful was I reached out to previous Fulbright recipients. So if anybody's interested, feel free to reach out to me. Um, That really gave me feedback on my application and what to expect for the interview process. Um, I would also say that it's a little bit of an arduous process. It has a lot of components, multiple essays, a lot of recommendation letters, um, and also letters of support from the host country that you'll be going to. You have to like, um,
1: find someone there that help sponsor yes, you. Yes,
2: exactly. And the more that you have, the more legitimate your application looks when you're about to apply. So um, I think that kind of getting a head start and starting it well before the September deadline. September
1: of, Se- I guess, I guess the you've seen year. year. So I want to start over the summer Yes, then.
2: exactly. Um, so September is a pen deadline, so it's internal. And then from there, um, they'll narrow it down. They don't necessarily weed out people, but um, from my understanding, they'll provide recommendations. They'll also um, recommend you to the Fulbright Commission. And um, the Fulbright Commission of the country that you'll go to uh, narrows it down to whatever number that they accept.
1: All right, sounds good. All right, so now... Uh, what you how what was your full the experience like, obviously you lived in the Philippines for a full year um you don't natively speak Filipino no. but luckily the Philippines speaks English exactly um and obviously you said you have like a support network there so first off how did your research go what did you find you know from your research
2: mm-hmm. um so I guess that my research I went about it in multiple ways one is I worked with the Philippines General Hospital, which Mm -hmm. is a large government-funded hospital in Metro Manila. Um, So I shadowed and volunteered with developmental pediatricians there and interviewed um, some of the patients that were willing to share some of their experiences with me. Um, I also taught classes in two different special education centers. So I taught um, teenagers, I taught 35 teenagers in one school and then elementary school students in another center. and I haven't had very much formal training as a teacher at all, but I was able to use some of the skills that I got through Penn for Autism after school program and kind of mm-hmm. tie it into my education programs at um, the Philippines. And then the third component was I partnered with the Philippines Department of Health um, to create a skills uh, caretakers training program for um, Mindanao in particular. Yeah. So areas that were hit heavily by Typhoon Haiyan. Yeah. Um, because we found that doctors were only willing to go to those areas once every like four to five years. And those doctors were oftentimes um, general practitioners, not specialists. So it was really hard for these communities to have a greater understanding about developmental delay, what it means, the reasoning behind it, or what different therapies are available. Um, When I was at the General Hospital, we had families that would literally sell their land, sell their house, to take the trip to the General Hospital. So they would take a boat from these southernmost islands and go all the way to Metro Manila.
1: Which in the north.
2: Yes, and sit in the hospital on the floor, wait there for three days to get an appointment with their kid, only to be told by the doctor, hey, your kid has autism, there's nothing really you can do. And these parents oftentimes aren't allowed, or aren't able to afford some of the management medications that they right. needed for their kids. So they kind of had to come home empty-handed in a worse-off position than when they started. So I worked with the Philippines Department of Health to create... Um, physical training programs and speech training, speech therapy programs for parents and like church leaders and community members mm-hmm. to provide, you know, basic therapies to these individuals. Um, and you don't necessarily have to be a healthcare professional to do these therapy programs. Right.
1: Wow. Well, sounds super, super great. I guess it was
2: really hard.
1: <laughs> was, uh, I guess it wasn't easy, but I guess would you say it was worth it though?
2: I would say for the most part, it was definitely worth it. So. In the Philippines Department of Health, the number one priority is always going to be communicable mm-hmm. diseases. It's yeah. not going to be mental health or something like developmental delay. Yeah,
1: we have we have we have lots of problems. Today, <laughs> but
2: um, but what was most hard was coming back to the U.S. and um, especially it was a politically tumultuous time. But yeah. I imagine, or from what I've heard from the people that I've worked with, a lot of our work has been undone yeah. um, with the recent presidency and kind of the focus on martial law in the area. Okay. Um. So it's been a little bit hard to see. You know. These steps that we take kind of move backwards. But at the same time, I take peace in knowing that the families that we work with continue to use those therapies for their mm-hmm. children today, um, and that they're still going strong in the communities like yeah. um that we worked with.
1: Um, and if you hadn't moved taking the steps forward, it would have been involved even further yeah.
2: back, I guess. That is one good way to look at it. Yeah.
1: Okay. Cool. Um, and aside from you know the the resource component, what was like you know living in the Philippines? Like what was the whole I guess the the other component that I guess full by the living of life. oh it was like. so
2: much fun um, aside from having a great full write batch so mm-hmm. we had a variety of different full writers that did projects ranging from slow agriculture to um, sex trafficking to like college admittance rates um, I was able to really make great friendships that I hold mm-hmm. really dear to me um, I. Found a church that I was really involved in, and that's kind of how you build a community in the Philippines. Yeah. Um, I found a great group of students that I loved working with mm-hmm. and teachers that I got to see every you day.
1: involved like a, yeah, a dance group. Right? Yeah, almost, so
2: I of. worked with um, the Hard at Play Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and that's a fantastic organization based in Manila as well that provides dance movement therapy to over 90. Um, children and teenagers with special needs and that's something that I actually when I went back to the u.s. I um, Got that program started in New York City oh, wow. um, yeah. So somebody from the Philippines um, Patricia Rivera who started the heart at play in the Philippines actually flew all the way to New York And helped me get it started in um, New York City where we taught 120 adults with special needs how to nice. dance so, I can't <laughs> dance to save my life, but I really enjoy it <laughs>
1: Yeah, no definitely. I, that, that's super cool that you're able to continue it on past your yeah. Um Okay, and then uh, quick question, I guess. As a Filipino, what was your favorite Filipino food? You you picked up Ooh, in the Philippines? sinigang. Sinigang, okay. Absolutely.
2: At first, Solid I was choice. like, this is weird. At first, I was like, this is sour. Why would anybody eat this? Until I realized, like. Sinigang when you're sick is wonderful. Perfect. It clears yeah. up the sinuses and just makes you feel alive again. Also,
1: like this with really, really good ingredients, it's really great. Yes,
2: absolutely. Um,
1: and I guess you know, what was any particular favorite memories? I guess from your time in the Philippines.
2: Um, particular memories that I really enjoyed. Um, so when my students graduated from high school, we created your students
1: like the the ones that you were teaching. No? Yes.
2: Uh, sorry, yeah, I should have clarified that. When my students graduated from high school, I had the chance to choreograph a musical number for them. So watching them perform it was so much fun um, their parents were like crying in the back because like for a lot of these kids it was like overcoming physical barriers but also mountains of self-doubt and nervousness mm-hmm. about being a performer in general and like what's
1: what song did you did can't you stop
2: do? the feeling nice. <laughs> and um, also tongue Funk they were yeah, obsessed yeah. with
1: it <laughs> The F- Filipinos love Boone of he's also Filipino yes. so.
2: <laughs> exactly exactly um, and so just kind of seeing them st- Seeing them see themselves in a different light uh, was really a, a wonderful experience for me.
1: All right, sounds good. And all right, so you finished you know, Fulbright, and now you go to med school. Uh, no, you don't. You decide <laughs> to uh, leave Penn and go to Harvard, the other yeah. Ivy. But okay, in all seriousness, congratulations. You 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 went to Harvard Law School, and not only that, you also actually became a Zuckerman Fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, which is uh, would you want to tell us what the Zuckerman Fellow is?
2: Yeah. So the Zuckerman Fellow is. A program that provides full tuition and a living stipend as well as health insurance for individuals pursuing joint degrees. And these joint degrees have to be service-oriented. So Mm -hmm. it's for people who are either in um, business school, law school, or medical school who are pursuing a joint degree at the School of Public Health, School of Education, or the Kennedy School of Public Policy at Harvard. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a group of 16 of us. Um, all of us are either pursuing or have completed a professional degree and are out getting a second one
1: okay, so you're doing uh school of public health so public health with j d so all right pause real quick, so you said that you wanted you you had done premed all through penn mm-hmm. um you were still doing like you new medically related thing in 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 the autism research um in the Philippines. you had said like the high school you had that experience that led you to not want to do law school. What led you to decide ultimately? having spent, you know, four or five plus years of your life trying to go for med school to decide to, you know what, I'm going to go for law school instead.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I should clarify also when I was in the Philippines is when I applied to both med school and law school at the same time. Okay, cool. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was a lot of me flying back and forth from the Philippines to the U.S. for interviews. It was a whirlwind experience for mm-hmm. sure. My, okay. I definitely racked up those frequent fly miles. Um, and for me, it was kind of A reflection of how confused I was at the time that I did apply for both, somehow I thought you know what I'm gonna do an MDJD, I'm gonna go hard, I'm gonna be a machine Um, and I realized that like maybe that life's not for me and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought about why I wanted to pursue medicine. I was sitting there at the Philippines General Hospital waiting Mm -hmm. with patients and I realized that I might not be happy working at a hospital every day and that's something that was really hard for me because It was the first time that I really took into account what might make me happy or what Mm -hmm. I might enjoy, like tangibly enjoy um, as a reality rather than as a concept. And I thought, what is it that I really loved about my Fulbright? What are the challenges that I encountered that I really think that I could make the most impact in? And a lot of that was policy oriented. Um, For example, working with the Philippines Department of Health, a lot of that was just navigating bureaucracy, navigating red tape. It's not the
1: research, it's not the science. No,
2: not necessarily. It's not necessarily working with patients or working with parents, which I loved. Um, But it was more like knowing that there's a way that institutional change can be made. And there have to be people that are willing to kind of do the hard work to get that done. That really motivated me uh, throughout my research in the Philippines. So that's why I decided, when deciding between a JD or MD, I decided to go forward and go to law school.
1: Okay, cool. So you're happy as as I'm making that decision? I am.
2: I am happy. Of course, I have those like what if moments, like what if I had decided to go to a med school route instead. But for the most part, law school has been really fulfilling for me.
1: Okay. um, What do you think, I guess, thinking back to that experience in high school where you decided you didn't want to go to law, what do you think, I guess, you know, thinking back on that now that you're a law student, and probably one of the best law schools, if not the best in the country.
2: Um, what I will say is that four years at Penn equipped me with a sense of, you know, responsibility and also the idea that, you know, if I want something to change, then I have to be that. I have to, I have to be the one to make those steps. And I, it was kind of an empowering experience. Like, despite the fact that I was getting crushed in classes, like, still being surrounded by so many peers that, you know, just got stuff done. Like, I thought to myself, if I'm not the person going to law school, then there's going to be another mock trial student 10 years from now that also has experience, same experience that I had, being called sweetie or cutie mm-hmm. in the middle of a courtroom. And that's not something that I want. I want to be someone that, you know, other women look up to in the legal field. I want to be somebody that they can say, you know what, like, Grace could do it, and she's a tiny, non-imposing Asian girl. Like, I can do that too.
1: And if they hear your story through this podcast, they'll <laughs> think that. Um, <laughs> Uh, so how is the law school application? You said you were doing for both medical and law school. What would you say to somebody applying to, let's just say law school, not someone who's trying to do both, <laughs> but someone who's applying to law school, what what would you would say to them, I guess?
2: Um, I guess what I would say is don't apply to law school when, unless you want to be a lawyer. I know that sounds like very basic, but a lot of people go to law school for the wrong reasons. It would be, you know, oh, I don't know what's next in my career, so law school seems like, you know, an easy progression. Uh, but it's a lot of hard work and also... Three years out, like, if you don't want to practice law, perhaps it's not a good idea for you. Um, Another thing that I would say is that the first year is quite hard, but the second and third years get easier. Um, So I would say don't get discouraged by it, don't get discouraged if you don't fit in or find your community your first year. Um, You'll have two more years to figure that out.
1: Okay, cool. And you're in your second year right now? I am, yes. All right. cool. Um, so you know, how's life in law school? You said it's probably an easier year now compared to the first year. Yeah. Um, you know, how we found like kind of like, the same kind of involvement at Harvard that you had at, that you did at Penn?
2: Um, it's a little bit harder. So the average age of starting law school at HLS is something around like twenty six or twenty seven. So I'm definitely on the younger end mm-hmm. um, of the age range. So it's kind of hard sometimes to find a community where you really fit in, and it's not as organic as it would be at Penn. Um, but the first year you get put in a section where you take classes with the same people every day. And so that went a long way towards helping me find a community in a new city, in a new campus. Um, and then finally, my second year, I got the chance to you know, choose classes for the first time. Wow, what a strange concept, actually choosing what you want to take. Yeah. Um, and that's where I've gotten the chance to explore more of my interest in, you know, the intersection between science and law and mm-hmm. disability as well.
1: Okay, I remember you telling me before we interviewed that you into like an IP law, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. And then I, I, you also said that you were also involved in more advocacy stuff. Yes. Um, so what 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 are you involved with, you know, now?
2: Yeah. So this past semester, I've had the chance to get involved with the Veterans Law and Disabilities Benefits Clinic, which is an opportunity for students to work directly with clients. So I worked with clients that had served in Vietnam. More who are currently um, veterans and who have disabilities so most of my responsibilities involve representing them to get their social security benefits Mm -hmm. Uh, one of my clients for example he was a vietnam war veteran that during a parachute training fell out of a plane at 800 feet and his parachute failed to open um, he, he survived, He yeah. survived, but he broke both legs, had severe injuries, had multiple rounds of surgeries, and to this day walks with severe pain, mm-hmm. um, and he does not have Social Security benefits. Wow. So uh, I actually had the chance to prepare him for his hearing, and then I also had the chance to work with a mother that has a disability, her husband has a disability, and her child has a disability, and I was able to get them food stamps. Okay. Um, so things like that that really motivate me and remind me, like, you know, this is why I went to law school. These are real people. I'm not just reading cases that, you know, are just historical facts. Hypothetical. Exactly. Like, these are actual clients who, if I drop the ball on their case, if I forget a deadline, if I forget to file a motion, like, they're the ones who can't buy groceries at the end Mm -hmm. of the month. Um, And it's hard... To kind of balance that with being a student, but at the same time, it's also reinvigorating. Mm-hmm. Uh, much like you know, my work when I was at Penn with the after-school program was
1: okay. Um, quick question, I guess. You know, you said well, your clients are often like Vietnam veterans. Sometimes, mm-hmm. how how does how do you relate to that? I guess, given your parents, I guess, history.
2: It's hard sometimes, to be honest. Um, my clients oftentimes are a little bit wary at first of working with me, mm-hmm. um, one, because a lot of them are, you know, a little bit behind on the times or sometimes a little bit less technologically like mm-hmm. uh, with it or savvy. So, you know, just working with them. Some of my clients I work with via Skype. Um, so that's been a lot of work on. Um, but in terms of, like, my background, because I'm so young and because I'm a woman, that has also come into play with the dynamic. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the fact that I'm a Vietnamese woman. It's the fact that, you know, I'm a law school student. But on the flip side of things, like, if I'm not there to help represent them, like, they will be representing themselves. And that is oftentimes a not recipe a for idea. disaster. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that they recognize that, like, you know, I'm putting in this time and I really care about the case. So, mm-hmm. um, that oftentimes is enough to overcome some awkward barriers at first.
1: Okay, sounds good. Um, something a little bit lighter. Um, so, aside from you know being involved in, in all this advocacy and studying and, and so on, you also have a peculiar, a particular hobby in punning. Ah, yes. So, give us a little bit. Give, give us a little bit on that. Where did your love for puns come from? Uh, ah,
2: <laughs> so I just really enjoy wordplay in general. I like the feeling that like. Everybody can appreciate a pun. At least it'll get a reaction. Maybe not appreciation, maybe a groan. But I think that like wordplay is clever and it's really cute. And so I think it's a good community. There's actually like a punning community at New York when I lived here for a little bit, um, where there's like a competitive punning scene. And I can't see myself ever like competing for it, but I can see myself just like sitting there and enjoying the environment. So
1: what's your what's your favorite pun? Oh, lay one on us.
2: Um, so one of the first competitions I went to. Um, the winner made a joke about you know Trump and you know his recent speech at a debate. This was mm-hmm. during, during the, the election, yeah. yeah. And the theme was like weather and like natural disasters. And mm-hmm. he said, "Did you hear Trump?" Um, during the debate last night, he really tornadoed apart, uh, and I was like, ah! <laughs> but it's things like that where like you can kind uh, of like tie in current yeah. events with you know something kind of funny and witty that like it gets me every time.
1: Thinking it's like mental mental exercise.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Um,
1: all right. Cool. So I guess those are the couple of questions I ask everybody, um, and then a couple lightning rounds within those. But first, some some longer questions. I guess. What would you do if you think you know money were no object? I guess.
2: Oh, if money weren't an object, I'd probably be a special education teacher.
1: Okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, What do you think the impact you've had, you know, with your time at Penn, Penn Speaks for Autism, CHAC, VSA, AKD5, and so on and so forth. What do you think your impact or legacy was on on Penn or the people who you were with at Penn? But yeah, what, what do you think your impact and legacy on Penn was, has been?
2: I think that the work that I've done is like just a drop in the ocean. To be honest, there are people that I have come before me that did significant amount of work more than I did and people who are who have come after me that you know built upon that so I guess really like the only legacy that I have is just the relationships that I formed with the people mm-hmm. that were there um, and I can't say that I, like I was like the most uh, accomplished or inspirational person but I can say that like I, I really put a lot of effort into maintaining my relationships so I'd like to say that my legacy is just being there for people when they were sh- you know when were they struggling needed. yeah and that's something that I, I hope to be able to continue um, at law school mm-hmm. and beyond
1: so in addition to how you affected Penn, what do you think Penn's impact on your legacy, on, on your life has been? Aside from, you know, obviously relationships and friendships you've made at, at Penn, what do you think the, the impact has been? You kind of answered this before, but mm-hmm. have you, have you any other, I guess, additional, additional thoughts?
2: I mean, aside from what I said initially about how, like, sometimes you have to be okay with things not going to plan, what um, is that, you know, when you're at Penn, you're surrounded by some people that have done amazing things and there's a reason why you got gone to Penn and you can be one of those people too so for example like Henry Chow started like lions and also dragon boating and I was you know surrounded by peers that were like cutting-edge research and for me that kind of just gave me the sense of hey like if they can do these crazy amazing things and maybe I have the ability to do something maybe a quarter as amazing as that or half as amazing as that so it kind of like really gave me a sense of uh, empowerment and the idea that you know if I want something to happen sometimes you just have to go get it yourself.
1: Okay, cool. Um, so obviously you're, you're L2 right now. Um, you'll be graduating in about a year or so.
2: Cannot wait. <laughs> um,
1: so you know what do you obviously you'll, you'll probably go find fact tra- like practice at a firm mm-hmm. um, af- after you graduate. Where do you see life taking you? You know obviously you want I am, I'm imagining you'd want to continue your advocacy work mm-hmm. in whatever form it is be it for autism, veterans or whatever else. Um, but what do you what what do you see your life taking you you know from here?
2: Yeah, in the short term, I will be working for a law firm, um, mm-hmm. doing IP consulting. So I'll be working with startups to give them advice on their patent strategy and also representing them in litigation. Um, but long term, I'd like to find some way to combine my you know uh, public health background with it. So whether that be in um, policy making in the regulatory sphere. Or maybe even being a general counsel at a hospital or healthcare system. Those are kind of like some major goals that I have way down the line.
1: All right. Any panel, I'm looking for somebody. Hit, hit this girl up. <laughs> um, all
2: right,
1: cool. Now let, let, let's move into the lightning round. Oh, goodness. Um, so oh, no. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It'll be fine. All right. So what's something making you happy right now?
2: Oh, baking shows. So I recently started watching The Great British Bake Off on Netflix. Highly recommend. It made me want to bake up a storm. So. All right.
1: What, what, what have you baked lately? So
2: I made a green tea loaf cake with white chocolate chips, Ooh, um, which delicious. was fantastic. And I also recently made um, chocolate chip cookies from scratch. That's like, I think that I finally refined it down to a point where I'm very happy with it.
1: (laughs) Then using that scientific... Oh, yeah. Baking's all about science. All right, cool. Um, There are two kinds of pendulum.
2: Oh, people that can answer this question with a quirky response and people like me.
1: Uh, Okay. Um, Let's see. What's the biggest thing you wish you had done at Penn that you didn't do?
2: Mm, I guess that I wish that I had gotten the chance or that I had talk to professors more Um, because honestly like yeah the meetings are awkward that's largely because some of them are just awkward people but they feel as awkward about it as you do and I think that they're really a wealth of knowledge Um, so I wish that I had made more use of office hours and also that I had the courage to talk to professors you know after classes got to know them got coffee with them even professors that I didn't necessarily take classes with they are really interesting people um, and that goes for all faculty and staff. Are there
1: any professors who you were able to talk to um that you'd like to give a shout out to, I guess?
2: Um, I think that one professor that I felt quite close to was my organic chemistry professor, Professor Madame Juliet. Um, she is one of the four most thought leaders in organic chemistry for her time. It was actually, a member of the chemistry faculty before Penn had women's bathrooms in the chemistry building. So she's kind of like a wealth of knowledge and really an inspiration, despite the fact that 20 people got single digits on her exam.
1: (laughs) Well, everyone has two sides to them. Um, Okay, cool. Uh, Who are your role models?
2: Uh, My role models are my parents. My mom and dad, that's probably a very cliche answer, but honestly, like they sacrificed so much to get me and my sister where we are today. And everything that I do is with them in mind. So they're my role models. Okay.
1: Um, what advice would you have for your high school senior self regarding your Penn journey? Um, and this is kind of a thinly veiled question about advice for anyone currently at Penn as well.
2: Um, I would say. Not that we haven't given a lot of
1: advice <laughs> over the course of this pocket, but all right, advice to, to
2: myself is just yeah. to have more fun, um, pursue interests that are actually like your own interests and not things that you think that you have to check off a list in order to get, to X place in your life. Um, I think that there are very many different paths to end up in a in a happy place, and there's not necessarily a formula for success. So just kind of let loose, um, get to know more people, make genuine relationships, those are the main things. Oh, and just be kind. Be kind to yourself and be kind to other people. Kind to yourself and just make time to take care of yourself, that's probably. Uh, one of the most important things that I would have wished I learned more. All
1: right, Um, and what's a question that you you wish I had asked you that I did not ask you?
2: Hmm, one question that I wish that you had asked me that you did not ask me is um, how do you keep in touch with pen friends after graduating?
1: How do you keep in touch with pen friends after graduating?
2: Surprisingly, it's a lot easier than I expected. But what I can say is that um, pen friends are around the world. Uh, when I was in the Philippines, I met up with six Katie Five Sisters um, around the Philippines and Hong Kong and Southeast Asia. Uh, when I got back to New York, there's a whole family here of mm-hmm. pen friends that you know are always available and willing to hang out. And in Boston, there's a strong contingent as well. So no matter where you go, there'll always be a really strong network. And all you have to do is just take the first step of being proactive.
1: Take the first step. Yeah, I feel like I feel like, you know, also living in New York, it's just a thing where it's like, everyone's like, oh, we'll catch up sometime. Yeah, follow through. gotta
2: follow through with that. All
1: right, cool. We'll, we'll, we'll follow through. All right, cool. So <laughs> thank you so much. So before we go, is there anyone you'd like to shout out um, uh, now that you, have the, that you have the microphone in the air?
2: Yeah, I'd like to shout out my amazing mentees and Little, which um, those are Trisha Peralta, Sarah Shin, and d You guys really made my pen experience amazing, and I look forward to hanging out with you guys again in the future.
1: Okay, cool. Anyone else?
2: Uh, my big Jin and uh, my great grand big Jenny Fan. These are two women who are very inspirational, strong and people that I hope to emulate in some form going right. forward.
1: Alright, sounds good. And if people want to get in touch with you for anything you've said, you know, be it questions about how to do well as a pre-med, how to apply to law school, how to apply for Fulbright or just giving you a good pun, uh, what, what would be a good way for them to get in touch with you?
2: Send me all the puns at my email address which is G-P-T-R-U-O-N-G at gmail.com Trong at gmail.com
1: Alright, anything else? LinkedIn or anything else?
2: Um, my LinkedIn is available. If you Google search me, it'll be there. I hope. Alright, I'll,
1: I'll include the links in the show notes. Um, cool. So thanks so much, Grace. This has been a pleasure. It's been such a, wonder, such a glo- uh, uh, and great time talking to you as always as your friend. Always fun. Uh, so Thank you so much. Uh, and nice. Do you have do you have a pun to send us off?
2: It's cold out there, but make sure you still make puns, even if you get a frosty reception. all right, Thank you, guys.
1: Thank you, guys. All right, thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again to our guests once again for coming on the show to share their story and wisdom. And I also want to thank you for giving this show a listen. Uh, contact information for our guests can be found in our show notes at upanpodcast.podbean.com. Our music is provided by Fortissimo. Be sure to check him out on SoundCloud and Facebook. Editing and production was provided by Ninja Boy Media. Special thanks to the Pan-Asian American Community House and Alumni Relations. A quick reminder, the views and opinions expressed on this show are those of those appearing on this podcast alone and do not reflect those of the University of Pennsylvania. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you think that you or another alum you know might be good to be interviewed for this podcast, please reach out at upanpodcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook page. Until next time, I'm your host, Paul Bautista, signing off. Remember, keep it funky. Bye, guys.